Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative and lifestyle medicine, we review the medical literature, and we review case studies. Today's show topic is how to create a successful, plant-based, diet-driven, heart disease reversal program in a cardiology setting. Our guest today is Dr. Kim Allen Williams, MD. He is the immediate past president of the American College of Cardiology. He is a James B. Herrick professor. He is chief division of cardiology at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. So thanks, Dr. Williams, for taking time out of your busy day to come on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. So can you just give us a little bit about your educational background and how you got to your current position at, at Rush? So it might take quite a while to talk about all of it, but I'll just kind of hit the highlights. Grew up in Chicago, and they say nothing ever good comes out of the Chicago public schools. That's not true. <laughs> Transitioned to the University of Chicago for college and medical school. Went away to Emory University at the time when they were doing a lot of cardiology. So, for, so my internal medicine time was very cardiology-based. Came back to the University of Chicago for a cardiology fellowship and was immediately recruited to be on the faculty particularly in, my, in the area that was very new at the time of nuclear cardiology. So I pretty much developed the Nuclear Cardiology Laboratory at University of Chicago, and I ran that for from 1982, essentially, to 19, I'm sorry, to 2010, where when I went to Wayne State to become chief of cardiology, wanting to be in Chicago as much as I did, it was a wonderful opportunity presented to lead the program at Rush University Cardiology, and I took over the chief position here in 2013. So I heard you speak uh, last year uh, at the Nutrition and Cardiovascular Conference, and you came after a group of cardiologists that had talked about trying to incorporate plant-based nutrition into their programs, and I didn't know at that time that you were either president-elect or president of the American College of Cardiology, and you spoke about that you'd been on a plant-based diet. So I'm, I'm wondering, how did that come about? When did, you be, when did you get interested in plant-based nutrition? So my own interest actually was uh, long ago. I was at a meeting of the Association of Black Cardiologists, and there was a wonderful um, plant-based cardiologist. This is in the 1980s who was always talking about the or Dean Ornish publications and the lifestyle trials that D Dr. Dean Ornish had run showing plaque regression. And he, at the time, Dr. Taswell Banks, uh, had was the head of the coronary care unit at Howard University's D.C. General Hospital. And he made the very bold statement that he had been, since that publication in JAMA, he had been putting people, when they come in for a heart attack, on plant-based nutrition and that the recurrence of heart attacks was zero. And, you know, it's a bold statement that, you know, Taswell, you probably should publish that. At least <laughs> other people can hear about it. But I didn't give it too much thought until a few years later when I was at an American College of Cardiology meeting doing my routine lipid testing, which we used to do a lot of lipid testing. You go over to the booth in the exhibit hall and you get your cholesterol tested. And uh, my cholesterol was always okay. And I was had my youngest son who I was coaching in tennis on the national circuit. I used to be a professional tennis player and coach. And so I was actually playing tennis until about 2001, twice a day, almost every day. And it turns out that when you stop doing high-level act, act, uh, activities uh, physically, and at the same time you get a little older, your cholesterol can have a dramatic rise. And that, this has actually been characterized. So I, my warning is to anybody in their 40s, uh, don't be rest on, on the assurance that your cholesterol was okay in your 30s. You ought to have it tested again. So my LDL cholesterol, which 
was 110 when we started to say, well, it ought to be 100, or it ought to be 90, or it ought to be 70. So as our requirement was going down, mine actually was going up, and it was actually 170 in 2003. So I knew about the Ornish diet. I looked it up again. Uh, I was very fortunate, very fortunate that that same month uh, there was another plant-based diet that was published. It was the portfolio diet specifically taught me. It was talking about reducing your LDL cholesterol through diet. And the portfolio diet also was published in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, and it clearly delineated that within two weeks, your blood cholesterol, your LDL cholesterol could dramatically fall if you did almonds and plant sterols and fiber like you would with a vegan diet that has nuts in it. So did that diet and within, I didn't check it again for another few weeks, but in about six weeks, my LDL had fallen from 170 down to 90. Mm -hmm. So I was essentially vegan since that time. So that was March of 2003. Wow. And that was Dr. David Jenkins' study, if I recall, correct? Was indeed. Yeah. So then, did you start incorporating it into your practice as a, as a cardiologist? Interestingly enough, once I saw that data, of course, was going to share that with my patients as well. Didn't realize that this field was going to mushroom, no pun intended. It's not just about cholesterol testing, but Dr. Effelston and his plaque regression, Dean Ornish with subsequent pl uh, publications on plaque regression. You have variety of diseases heart attacks, stroke, which are epidemiologically less in the people who eat more plants and less animals. And you actually have data on hypertension, which was being developed at the time. And some of it goes back to the 1930s and the Kempner Rice diet, but plant-based nutrition can dramatically improve blood pressure. And so, uh, of course, the number of patients in cardiology practice, particularly university cardiology practice, who do not have high cholesterol, do not have high, high blood pressure, actually pretty small. And so I began trying to incorporate that in, into my practice. And over the years, it's developed into a, into a real science of how to get people to, to you know, like I say, don't let their culture hold their heart hostage. <laughs> All right. Well, let me ask you this, and that's a, that's a great story. So I'm going to ask you, then, do you think that heart disease is a foodborne illness and we could eradicate it with the correct diet? Yes. People talk about 90%. I must live in an alternative universe, it's about 99%. And the reason I say it's not 100% is because there are congenital heart disease defects that we are addressing as a community much better than we were in the past, and they are living to older ages. Those are not foodborne. But almost everything else that affects the heart is. There's an occasional viral episode, and I haven't seen convincing data, even though there is data to say that vegetarians have a better immune system. It is even possible that those viral cardiomyopathies, viral pericarditis, those unusual illnesses, not the run-of-the-mill thing, we do see them, but, and it's possible that plant-based nutrition could affect those, but we don't have data on those. But we have data for pretty much everything else, heart attacks, stroke, mortality, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, and, so we, we, and, and the cholesterol as well. So yes, it's an incredibly high likelihood that we can help a patient any given patient who comes to our cardiology clinic with nutrition. And you would say that you can reverse this disease, correct, most of the time? So, you know, it's interesting. People ask me, what's my opinion? And I like to tell them, I'm fortunate to live in a cardiology world that is so data-driven that I don't have to have 
any opinions, maybe a few here and there. This isn't, you know, Kim Williams's opinion. This is actually documented literature. Now, obviously, the editorial boards could be fooled in, on occasion, <laughs> okay? And there are some things that you read that you, even though they're peer-reviewed, you don't believe. For example, uh, one great example would be the recent Yokohama, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, Yokoyama meta-analysis um, published in the Journal of American Medical Association on the relationship between vegetarian diet and blood pressure. And out of about 30 studies, there were three of them that said that the blood pressure goes up. Well, I'm not sure I believe those, okay? But the preponderance of the data indicates that blood pressure goes down and goes down significantly with plant-based nutrition. And so I, I like to say that everything we're talking about, including plaque regression, is evidence-based. Specifically for plaque regression, there are sort of two fields that, yeah, that I feel need to be merged. One is the statins. You know, uh, people talk about the atorvastatin, simvastatin, you know, gorilla statin, statin. They're all, you know, that they're horrible drugs and that they cause so many muscle and joints and everything from muscle aches to, you know, muscles coming apart. This is called rhabdomyolysis to liver disease and, you know, well, interestingly enough, those things do happen. They happen extremely rarely, except for the muscle aches, which is a lot more common than some people think. But I like to tell people that the biggest side effect of statins over the last three decades has really been breaking the Medicare trust fund because people aren't dead. And so it's, uh, they, are, they have had an incredible impact on cardiology, particularly after a heart attack, particularly people who have uh, very high cholesterol. Now, if you look specifically at the reversal of coronary artery disease, there are several studies. Some of them are very old, you know, with different kinds of cholesterol medicines. The statins are the best. It doesn't work with the low and intermediate dose statins. It only works with the high dose statins. And so there is the asteroid trial that people could, you know, look up on their internet search. Uh, there is the reversal trial, and you can see plaque images that go down by 30, 40 percent over a couple of year period of time. Um, in addition, there is more recent data on plaque stabilization, which actually, interestingly enough, doesn't require high-dose statin. You can stabilize plaques with intermediate-dose statins. However, if you switch over from the medication and you start looking at diet, the data is even more compelling. Um, you can equal the amount of plaque re regression with a statin with what uh, Dean Ornish has published. And if you look at some of the cases that are published by Caldwell Esselstyn, which is an even more restrictive in terms of having a zero fat as opposed to an Ornish diet, which is more like 10% fat vegan diet, the zero fat vegan diet is associated somehow with a more rapid reversal. And there are, we're not just talking reversal, we're talking resolution of coronary artery disease in some of those patients published by Dr. Esselstyn. Right. So, of course, I like to live in the middle. I know there are a lot of plant-based nutrition folks who are not comfortable talking about statins, and I know there are a massive number of cardiologists who adopt statins because it's in the guideline and aren't comfortable talking about nutrition. Um, so I like to be the person who is uh, putting the two together and trying to design a program for a patient um, that will allow them to get the benefit of both worlds. So, wow, that was a lot. So I had a bunch of questions that I want to sneak in there. So your plant-based diet, it's, is it a hybrid of Esselstyn's and Ornish, or are you a strict you know, four-food grouper, um, no nuts or seeds, or, or little fish oil? What is your 
plant-based diet that you would ideally recommend to a patient? So I finally get to give an opinion. Thank you. Because <laughs> all I've done so far is quote data. All right, so my opinion and my synthesis of this actually came from being on the programs with Dr. Ornish and Dr. Ethelston, and they were so wonderful. They both came to the American College of Cardiology when I was president last year, and they both participate in our nutrition work group that we've set up, the American College of Cardiology. And so after listening to them and just digesting, no fun intended, the concepts that they have uh, put forth, here's what I do, and you could say that I'm right or wrong, uh, and you can certainly challenge it because this is opinion. If a patient comes to me with risk factors like I had, and they have no documented disease, I tend to use the Ornish diet. If a person comes to me with high levels of disease, high levels of disease, three-vessel disease, they're told they need bypass surgery, they'd like some dietary alternative, they need fast resolution because they really don't want to have that surgery. They're not, they don't want to wait two years for the pla little bit of plaque regression to occur with a high-dose statin, or they're intolerant of the statin, which happens a fair amount of the time. Then I ask them to, and I inform them about the Esselstyn diet. You know, it is not impractical. It can be done. It's difficult to do if you don't have a supportive environment, but part of our job is to convince the entire family that everyone's outcome is going to be improved for a variety of chronic diseases, by the way, not just the, the patient who's sitting in front of me with the disease. And so then, there, of course, there are people that have milder forms of the disease, say a person who has not had a heart attack, but they have, a, say, an abnormal nuclear scan. So they have documented disease. It's on the mild side. You've got some time. You want to make sure that the plaque stabilized, and at the same time, you, you want to get them some regression going those are the ones where I tend to recommend Asselstyn for a year or two. And if you can do it forever, wonderful. If you feel like, okay, you're going to put in that time with the no fat, no avocados, no nuts, no olive oil, you put in your time for six months, 12 months, 18 months, and then switch over to the Ornish diet. And I'm, I feel like I'm a, sort of a comfort level that we have two options that are wonderful that have definite regression one is a kind of a stronger dose if you will and one's very well verified but maybe not as fast at re at resolving and you know i'm why is this opinion because there's never been a randomized trial looking objectively at plaque regression uh between um any of the diets you know a lot of people by the way recommend a mediterranean diet and there's the Leon trial and the uh, Predimed trial, great publications showing mm, 30 to 40% reduction in cardiac events. Yes, there is a significant residual risk of the Mediterranean diet that based on comparing one study versus another, not comparing populations within the same study, but when you compare the results of one study versus another, you probably are going to do substantially better with a vegan diet than with a um, Mediterranean diet, but we do not have head-to-head -head Ornish versus Esselstyn versus Predimed versus DASH even for blood pressure. So this is something I would really love to see so that we don't have to give opinions about, oh, I'm going to prevent with Ornish, but I'm going to treat with Esselstyn. <laughs> well, you know, your colleague, Dr. Budoff, who I... Um and doing some some work with you know he can measure that that soft plaque and regression and my my dream was to take an Esselton diet strict and then maybe do an Ornish 
side by side or an Esselton plus fish oil or an Esselton plus nuts and seeds and see what endothelial function change there is using maybe Esselton's hardcore diet as a, as a control. So let's get back to when you follow these people, how do you, how do you note aside from an event not happening that they're getting regression or improvement? So first of all, event not happening is really important. If you ask me, have I had people have events on high-dose statins? Yes, I have. Do I feel that the events, the events are far less? I really do. In my own practice, have I had a vegan have a cardiac, cardiac event, stroke, anything? The answer is no, not one. Now, that is similar to my old friend at, uh, at, at Howard University. You know, you, you got to kind of publish that. And so I do want to try and, you know, analyze the data that we have internally. Uh, it would be great if everyone who was doing plant-based nutrition, and I'll, I'll propose this in public right now, that we develop a registry and submit to it so that we can have large data sets talking about the frequency of people categorizing them by diet. For example, you've got, you know, one very simple metric would be just to be able to put people in the five different bins proposed by or published by the Adventist Health Studies, Gary Fraser, mm-hmm. as the, you know, the standard American diet, the semi-vegetarian where they eat a lot of stuff, but they cut it back a little bit, a few more vegetables, the pescatarian diet, the lacto-ovo-vegetarian diet, and the complete vegan diet. And, you know, most people can, within a few words of discussion, can be characterized into one of those five bins and then, then actually follow them. And so, um, so maybe uh, your publications can be very helpful in getting folks to uh, recognize the need for developing that kind of data and not just leaving it all to, pour, you know, to you know, one set of investigators at Loma Linda. How do you get people, so you're sitting there in front of a patient, when you say, I'd like you to follow um, a plant-based diet of whatever form you choose, do you give them a handout there? Do you send them to, like, Dr. Esselton has a five-hour workshop? Do you send them to a dietitian? How do you get someone started in the real world? So first of all, to, to quote uh, a very wise modern philosopher, Dean Ornish, you, you have to meet people where they are. And that is, so that's what I try to do. I need to understand what their culture is. I need to understand their level of health literacy, and it's interesting that the more the more highly educated people tend to be more risk averse, and if you show them data, they adopt it almost immediately. Uh, other folks who have not perhaps understood from a healthcare point of view that there is a direct relationship, and they may be hearing it from me for the first time ever, that there's a death direct relationship between lifestyle and cardiovascular outcome. It's going to take them a while to wrap their consciousness and their culture around that concept. And so we end up um, having a different approach based on who the patient is and what their background is. Uh, so that said, for the you know person with a PhD in nutrition, actually pull them in, I show them a couple studies, uh, you know, key literature about uh, everything from risk factors to disease states to mortality, uh, particularly stroke, where the, where the data sets are relatively robust. And I can actually share with them my slide set that I, when I, the, the talk that you saw me give, and they digest that information, and it, it's a done deal. They come back vegan. Again, it's, and it's all everything that they used to eat is in the past. How do you get so them both, started? What do they go to when you say 
they turn vegan, oh, what happens? For those folks, I typically will, the website that you have for Dean Ornish and Caldwell Athelstan are actually tremendous resources. And the books that they have published are excellent resources. And the highly educated people have no problem. I recommend them, again, based on whether I'm preventing disease or treating disease. To those resources, then uh, it's, a, it's a pretty much done deal. For the other folks who are the more usual patient that I'm seeing in, a, in an inner city urban practice where their health literacy is not at the highest level, and I spend a lot of time talking with them about what it is that they are actually going to eat on a daily basis. We talk about decreasing calories, we talk about decreasing fat content, and we talk about a lot of substitutes. Now, some people will call those meat substitutes like, you know, veggie burgers, you know, veggie bacon and veggie chicken and uh, made out of soybeans, and now they make them out of wheat, and now they make them out of mushroom protein, for goodness sakes. Products are all over the place. They are not the lowest in fat. They're not the lowest in, in sodium, but they actually do uh, lower blood pressure. And I was so rem remarkably impressed with that that I tried doing a search on where is this coming from. And sure enough, it actually was published. The Intermap study looked specifically at this type of, you know, you put all this texturized vegetable protein, what happens to blood pressure? And they have isolated the amino acid, glutamic acid, as the culprit, the beneficial culprit, at lowering systolic pressure when you eat veggie protein. So I don't, you know, if a person isn't critically in that Esselstyn type of three-vessel disease uh, territory, having the, uh, you know, you tell me your favorite item and I tell you what the vegan substitute for it is, and then you go to the store and you buy it and you just replace all the stuff in your, in your freezer with non-animal products. None of, none of these products have cholesterol in them. It's pretty, so it's pretty easy to do. And, and there are very few things that you can't find vegan nowadays. I try to tell them they live in a great country where they can actually get pretty much anything they want. I'm not the biggest fan of going to the fast food restaurant and ordering the veggie burger because I'm concerned about all the other things that will be on it, everything from mayonnaise to having fried the veggie burger, for, for example. And so, you know, doing that on occasion, doing it in a pinch when you have no other choice. So most people will call this the transition diet, and I agree with that. It would be better to have more fresh fruits and vegetables, but I don't shy away from texturized vegetable protein because it can really make that transition uh, not just palatable but enjoyable for patients. Let me ask you, Dr. Williams, you're a busy cardiologist, and if some cardiologist is listening to this saying, yeah, okay, I get that the plant-based diet could really help my patient and the real literate people could go to the Internet. But how much time did you just spend with your patient telling them to do what you, what you just told me? I mean, do you spend 10, 15 minutes on diet counseling or, or what? My template says that my return visits are 20 minutes and my new visits are 40 minutes. And my new visits typically take an hour and 10 minutes. They're progressively behind, my staff knows to let the patients know. And, you know, if you get a no-show or two, which is a disaster for your practice, by the way, because they end up rescheduling and taking up more slots from, a, from an administrative point, point of view, it's a nightmare. But, you know, if there's no-show or two, then I stay on time. But I actually routinely schedule myself empty for about two hours after clinic on the assumption that I, I'm going to have to start from scratch and work through this uh, with people. And so I try to do all my clinics in the mornings for that reason, and that may not be practical for everyone. You know, it's, it's easy when you're uh, an academic physician, and I choose to read the nuclear scans of the day at night 
So yes, I end up giving up. It makes longer days, there's no question. And the more tools that I have, and I do, I, you know, I have actually benefited, I've benefited tremendously from the insistence that we use an electronic health record because that means I've got a computer open and a screen that I can show the patient, you know, you tell me what it is that you like and I'm going to find you a substitute that's going to be nutritious and going to not be damaging and not increasing the amount of plaque that you already have. Um, so, yes, uh, you know, it, it may not be practical for the private practitioner who has, you know, trying to see 40, 50 patients a day. Uh, in that situation, I would say the best thing that you could do is uh, there are two alternatives. One would be a the group visit concept where you say, okay, if I'm going to have everybody come at a certain time, and we're going to talk about nutrition with this entire group, and we'll do it again for the group next week. That way the patients are kind of staying around, and you're seeing them individually one at a time, but a lot of the time has been spent on the education together. The other model that works pretty well is to find a plant-based healthcare practitioner who will help you, and that could be a dietitian. The number of plant-based dietitians is really tremendously increasing. We'd like to see more of it, and I hope that movement, you know, isn't just how do you take care of diabetes and how do you lose weight, which is classically what they've been focused on, and not prevention or certainly not regression. And so I'm happy to see that movement, and I'm, I'm hoping to see that that one grows tremendously as well. So uh, uh, allied healthcare workers who are knowledgeable in this area and group visits would be the, if you don't have the academic job where you can flex things to do them in the evening or you don't decide that, oh, maybe you want to spend the time with your family and you don't want to do work in the evening, <laughs> then you're going to have to come up with one of the other two strategies. So this model, um, you you make a living by being the, a professor and teacher and, and doing the um, particular types of scans you do. So a, a busy practitioner, how do they make dollars trying to tell people to do plant therapy? They'd have to be doing procedures or something, correct? Well, so there are a lot of people who are sort of non-invasive cardiologists and they have a specific amount of time. If you're able, if it's not going to get your echo lab in trouble for you to read your scans later at night and that can get you in trouble with your family, then you have that time that you can flex. If you don't, you're right. It's going to be very difficult to spend the time that's necessary to get into the patient's background and find out where they are, find out what it is that you need to recommend to individualize a plant-based pattern in the clinic setting. And that's where, you know, having educational sessions, we actually are talking about, you know, I don't like pushing any particular product, but let's just say educational movies on plant-based nutrition. We're about to set that up. We, right now we're running a series of, on CPR in Rush University Cardiology so that our patients who are sitting in the waiting room are learning more about CPR. Starting in the fall, we're going to take one of the more famous plant-based nutrition educational videos and uh, sort of and run that on a continuous loop so that people are understanding that they really can improve their outcomes. Um, so when you talk about how to, how to make money, that's a complicated thing. Let's just address the current and the future. The current is that you, we are predominantly fee-for-service, that the fees for seeing a patient in the clinic are far less than the procedures. When you do plant-based nutrition, a lot of the procedures go away. And so those people that I, you know, have, they come in, they're having a lot of symptoms, you, the symptoms are gone, they are become stable on medical therapy, 
wouldn't be uh, within the guidance of our American College of Cardiology appropriate use criteria to do more procedures. You don't do follow-up angiograms or follow-up nuclear scans or echoes on a stable patient. And so there is a financial risk to a practice of treating the patients very well so that they're having less events. The only way to overcome that is to continually see new patients, which actually does help the community and it helps the overall mortality. And if that's what we're interested in, that part is working. But it will have an effect on uh, the bottom line in terms of procedures. If you have the type of practice where you've got the overhead set up in such a way that you can benefit with managing medical problems as a cardiologist, managing hypertension, dyslipidemia, coronary heart disease, carotid artery disease, and you can do okay following these problems when they're doing well, you actually will make more money as an outpatient because the people are not dying. Uh, Dead patients don't come to clinic and they don't pay their bills. You actually can uh, turn a profit, but you have to think of it uh, that way. Uh, It's going to be more evaluation and management and less on the procedure side. The future is a volume of care delivered to value of care delivered switch. That switch is ongoing. It was legislated by the change in the payment system that happened with Medicare that happened in 2015. And over the next few years, you're going to see more people participating in quality metrics and alternative payment models. So if you now have an assignment of a certain large number of sort of Medicare-covered lives that you're responsible for, you get a certain amount of money, and if you have bad quality metrics, you lose money, or if they have cardiac events, you end up paying for those cardiac events in terms of covering their hospitalization. It comes out of the pool of money that you're being given to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Well, then that, they're called um, accountable care organizations, for example. If that's the case, you will be making money in droves by keeping people well. And as I'm saying, the plant-based nutrition people just don't have a lot of events. And so you end up having a stable group of people where you are incentivized to keep them healthy rather than treat their disease. So that volume to value transition is happening now, and plant-based nutrition will actually be the linchpin for success, in my opinion. All right. Well, I, I asked this actually to Dr. Esselton. I said, if everybody did your program, your, your wonderful institution here at the Cleveland Clinic that you so love, I mean, most of these specialty departments wouldn't exist. <laughs> I mean... You know, if we do it on a massive scale, an ideal scale. A couple of things, and I'll let you go. You obviously do care about cholesterol. Do you think it's a cofactor or a main player? And also, give me your opinion on saturated fat, because very controversial areas, and maybe fish oil as well. Uh, let me just deal with them in reverse. We were very interested in fish oil because the omega-3 fatty acids were, be, were thought to lower triglyceride levels, which they do, and to prevent events, which they don't. After large, multiple randomized trials, we can say conclusively that we throw fish oil under the bus if the expectation is that people are going to have less heart attack strokes or the most recent one for years ago was arrhythmias. Oh, yes, it's going to stop all your arrhythmias. It didn't. And so what is the benefit and when do I use it? Only in the patients who have severe hypertriglyceridemia, the fish oil, and hopefully you would use a preparation of fish oil, unfortunately very expensive, that has the PCBs, that's polychlorobiphenols, 
the mercury, saturated fat, and cholesterol removed. But that four-step process makes it kind of expensive. So it's not the best value proposition. We try really hard to get people to, to understand what makes their triglycerides go up. And that would be, you know, everything from fried food to animal products to starches on the vegetarian size, side. And it would surprise you to know that you're going to get more high triglyceride out of a bagel than you would a donut. So every cardiologist treating those high, high triglyceride patients has to go a little, a little bit go to school on what it is that, that you can do to get those triglycerides down. Um, you know, a lot of it's central obesity, et cetera, and, and you know, use the fish oil as an adjunct, um, hoping to get the patient in such, such a shape that they, don't, that they won't need it. Uh, let's talk about the saturated fat for a moment. There it was a wonderful publication, I believe about 10 days ago, that came out, I believe it was in JAMA Internal Medicine, that talked specifically about death rates in relationship to ingested fat types. And what it actually showed is that pretty much everything we thought was true. When New York says that they were gonna, they're going to legislate away the use of trans fats, they were justified in doing that. The data did, that was published in a very large population. It was the physician's uh, health study for men and nurses' health study for women. Large populations showed that trans fats increases mortality, saturated fat increases mortality, but a little less than trans, that, interestingly enough, monounsaturated fat decreased mortality, and polyunsaturated fat decreased mortality a little more. That was a surprise that, you know, because those of us who had been avoiding corn oil in preference for olive oil or canola oil, um, and of course, if you were doing Esselstyn, you wouldn't be eating any of the above, we were surprised that polyunsaturates did so well in this analysis. So whenever I talk about this, I, I want to talk about just make sure that people are hearing the message that that study was talking about mortality, was talking about death. It didn't talk about suffering. And so to have a, an obese, long, unhealthy life that you don't enjoy is probably not what we're looking for. And so John McDougall, one of the plant-based nutrition folks on the West Coast, it's either him or Chef AJ who works with him, they, they always say, the fat you eat is the fat you wear. And so I don't encourage a large amount of, you know, fried food, even if, you know, even if it's fried zucchini. It, things that have a lot of fat in them, if you are overweight, that can be a problem. So how about then cholesterol? You obviously use statins, so you believe cholesterol is a major player? So it's interesting that there are still people out there, and I saw a book on one of my colleagues' desk the other day saying, you know, the cholesterol myth. Well, you know, if, if my friend and anybody can put this in a search engine uh, and look it up. My friend uh, who I trained with at Emory, who's now chief of cardiology at Michigan State, Georgia Bella, has actually taken the cholesterol, human cholesterol, put it in a test tube and watched what the physical characteristics of it were. And then he's looked in, art, in human arterial studies in patients who have died. And some of the confusion about you know, whether cholesterol was really in that plaque, whether cholesterol was really playing a role, some of the confusion came by the fact that in the past, all of the post-mortem studies were done in such a way where the cholesterol was dissolved and would disappear and people didn't know what was in that space. Well, George has promoted electron micrographs of 
crystallized cholesterol, post-mortem and in a test tube. And it turns out that cholesterol is not just present, but it's probably the culprit. He says that when you make it in solution, when you make it cold, okay, or the concentration gets too high, it crystallizes. When it crystallizes, it makes sharp spikes. Those sharp spikes can then penetrate the lining of a plaque, protrude into the, uh, exposing the content of that plaque to the bloodstream, which then would give a heart attack. It's, it, one should actually look, in, look up Dr. Abella cholesterol crystals, do it in the search engine, and just take a look at the pictures. Um, when he puts it in a test tube, you watch them grow and expand, and if that happens inside of your heart, arteries, it's going to create a problem. Interestingly enough, the two things that he found that will stop the crystallization from happening, right, drum roll, are alcohol and statins. <laughs> you, put them in the, okay, you put them in the solution, uh, they, those crystals do not form. <laughs> I thought you were going to do something like tomato juice or something. <laughs> well, you know, the, well, the tomato juice would stop. The, if your people were doing plant-based nutrition, they wouldn't even dealing with the fact that there are cholesterol crystals in the wall of their artery. And so different mechanism, um, but I, I, I think people would be hard-pressed to defend the position that cholesterol is not the culprit. Um, now, it may not be the only culprit. There's loads of culprits that go along with it, and when you're eating you know, uh, animal products, you're getting a combination of everything from IGF-1, the horrible growth hormone, uh, you're developing TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, um, from what happens to your gut when you eat animal products, you're getting a lot of phosphorus, um, you're getting cholesterol, getting saturated fat, all of these things have been associated with increasing mortality, heart attack, stroke, diabetes, and so I don't want to blame cholesterol in, in and of itself, but there's a lot of information that says that cholesterol is a major, particularly LDL cholesterol, is a major player. How about, um, do you use any dietary supplements? Like, do you give CoQ10 with a statin? Do you give B12 on the vegan diet? I know you don't give much fish oil. Um, do you use, like, aged garlic like your, your colleague, Dr. Budoff, has shown? What do you do? Let me deal with each one of them in reverse order, of course. Um, the garlic actually does have some data for improvement of symptoms of arthritis a little bit and a little improvement of blood pressure a little bit. So I don't actually push that a lot, but I think it's okay to push it. This oil we talked about. So the CoQ10 data, I remember being one of the people who was sort of skeptical and didn't want to do it, very buttressed by the fact that the CoQ10 data showed that it does not attenuate the effect on the cholesterol and or for cardiac events. And so if it helps the muscle symptoms, to have the CoQ10 levels supported away from the drop that happens when you take uh, statins, then I'm fine with that. And so there are certain people who would have been statin intolerant who are no longer statin intolerant when they take the CoQ10. So I, I am in favor of that one. The other one is a really important thing to remember. Everybody thinks that, you know, if you're doing plant-based nutrition, that you need those animal products. That's, that's true, but it's not exactly right. So animals, mammals, do not make B12. None of us do. doesn't matter if you're a cow, pig, human. You don't make B12. The, the reason that these animals have B12 in them is because they eat dirty vegetables. Humans have a bad habit 
of washing their vegetables. B12 is made by bacteria in the soil. So you got a choice. Eat animals and have an increased mortality. Eat dirty vegetables, which probably isn't possible in most societies, or take a B12 supplement. And for me, that's an easy easy choice. And by the way, I, I do on more than occasion eat you know the veggie bacon and stuff like that. If you look at the back of that and you see the content, I always double check that it's a cholesterol zero. Cholesterol zero means there's no animal products in it, pretty much. And look to see if there's any B12 in them. And it turns out that most of these manufacturers have figured this out, that they're going to have a better pro, you know, product longer if that veggie hot dog that they sell at the, that Tiger's uh, Comerica Park actually has some B12 in it. And so most of those products actually do have the vitamins in them already. So is there any other supplements you use in your vascular patients? I don't use other supplements. You know, I can tell you that the history is replete with vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin A, folic acid, niacin, and every single one of them showed either no benefit or harm. And so one by one, they have fallen away. It's always embarrassing to see a patient that you've prescribed, you know, folic acid to because they had hyperhomocysteinemia. And homocysteine has 12 different mechanisms by which it ruins blood vessels and makes plaque and stroke and heart attack and death. That didn't mean that giving folic acid and lowering the homocysteine level was going to fix it. You make that assumption, and then you do a randomized trial, and guess what? No improvement and a tendency toward worsening. Same thing happened with improving HDL cholesterol with niacin, and we did that for decades. And some of the initial initial trials showed that there was some cardiac benefit, and maybe there is in, a, in some select populations, but for the most part, two very large long-term randomized trials have showed that niacin does not actually help outcomes and hurts a little bit. Do you have any concern about too low in HDL cholesterol that when you go on a plant-based diet, many times you can really drop your HDL as well? Do you have any concern about that? So that, that actually repeat my last statement because it applies to this as well. Fixing the numbers and having the patient die is not what we're looking for. So um, for the HDL story, you're absolutely right. When you lower the saturated fat, polyunsaturated, if you lower the fat content of your diet and you increase the fiber, your HDL will fall. Now, I always, in my patients, use it as an excuse. Oh, your HDL is falling. You better exercise more. I use it as a thing to stimulate them to exercise more. And it actually does, the exercise does bring up your HDL. Now, if they were to pin me to the wall and say, what is the data that raising your HDL would increase or improve your outcome? The data is actually not there. We, and so when people say, you know, that, cholesterol is a, a marker of disease or a marker of risk, but is not modifiable and that it's not the culprit. When they're talking about HDL, they're actually seem to be right. So the, the classic would be uh, niacin that I talked about already, and that was the HPS2 Thrives trial was the last foray, and that was the last time we did it, but we had a little bit of a signal even before that in the AIM High trial saying that you can fix your numbers with niacin, and the outcome does not improve and may be slightly worse. But before that, we had the cetropibs, torcetropib, anisetropib. These were experimental agents designed to raise HDL cholesterol, and they actually, for mechanisms that were pretty well documented to be liver disease and high blood pressure, shown to increase mortality instead of decreasing mortality, even though numerically the HDL got better, even the LDL got better. So we, we want outcome trials. We want hard endpoints. 
Is there a um, a place that you can get good food at the uh, Rush Medical Center in there <laughs> around the cardiology division? Uh, yes, we've actually had discussions now with both of our major hospitals at University of Cardiology is the staffing, and that's the Rush uh, Campus Hospital as well as the Rush Oak Park Hospital. And we now have vegetarian options for the inpatients, which was a major accomplishment and just very happy that it, that has happened, that we have forward-thinking people in the dietitian area because I can tell you at my two former institutions, I would have been better with, well, let me just say, I started to say equip, it would have been better with a dental degree because it was like pulling teeth. But um, let me just say that it, it can be difficult dealing with hospital administrations, not a reflection of the universities um, that were very much on board, but the hospital administrations are, let me defend them now that I've thrown them under the bus. They're actually concerned about uh, patient satisfaction in such a way that they're afraid to make things that the patient will not like. Now, obviously, the patient may be at odds with their own disease more so in cardiology than many other fields. You know, I'm sure addiction medicine would argue with me, (laughs) okay, but the patient may not be advocating for what's best for them. And so we have to show some leadership, and that has happened at Rush University. The other thing that I do is I, around the medical center, there are actually loads and loads of uh, healthy restaurants, and I point to a specific app. Um, I'm pretty sure they're nonprofit, so I can say that on on the air. It would be Happy Cow. You can download the app and, you know, it'll detect where your smartphone is and tell you what's around it. It's only failed me three times that I can recall. It was in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, once was in Colombia. There's a lot of meat and dairy. And actually in upper Wisconsin, there's a lot of dairy and a lot of deer meat and that sort of thing and not a lot of penetration of uh, vegan stores, vegan restaurants. But, you know, for most places, you are able to find some healthy options that are really not too far away from you. Do your colleagues around you, I mean, you're the head of the division, do they think you're kind of out there with your diet or do they say, yeah, it's, we, we see it, but we can't apply it? I mean, how do they respond to you? Well, it's interesting that when I came here, there was one vegan cardiologist. As of right now, there are four. And it's the process, like anyone else, of getting people to read all the information Part of that is our job is with the American College of Cardiology to get more nutrition information into the hands of the cardiologists that will allow them to help themselves as well as help their patients. I, if I had to pick, you know, one of my biggest frustrations as a cardiologist getting, you know, now that I'm in my 60s, is the number of cardiologists who die of heart attacks. Does, I, I, I guess it's probably clear why that would upset me. But it really gets to me every time a cardiologist, I, you know, I know plumbers. Those plumbers do not have difficulties with plumbing in their houses. It just doesn't make sense that a cardiologist would die of a heart attack. But yet it happens, and it happens every year. And there are people that I know and I appreciate it, and some of whom I've talked to, and I always get the feeling that I didn't talk to them enough. And so um, I, with, along with the American College of Cardiology Nutrition Subgroup, we are, our task force, we are working hard to get our journals to publish more information, get the blogs out there, talk about nutrition, nutrition as a mainstay in general cardiology and prevention. And if we're successful at that, we're going to help our patients and we're going to help ourselves as well. And are you still very active as an immediate past president of the American College of Cardiology in that group? 
Yeah, I'm happy to say, you know, the four years of the presidential team, vice president, president-elect, president, and immediate past president, the travel is about the same. Uh, so I'm speaking still all over the world and all over the country, talking. I get a lot of opportunities to talk about plant-based nutrition when, wherever I go. But the everyday, uh, you know, all the issues that are happening within the organization and the, and the interactions between our organizations and others, that's passed on to Dr. Rick Giselle's capable hands. And, uh, you know, one year is enough of that. It's difficult to be running a clinic and be told that 1.30 Eastern time you need to be on the phone with the Associated Press. You, you rearrange your life and do the best you can and, and then pass it on. And Rick's doing a fabulous job. What do you eat on an average day? Can you give me like a, a cruise through your day of what you you eat? Um, it, it's highly variable. I'm now, now that I'm immediate past president and I have more defined schedule, I'm now doing my two-a-day workouts again, uh, like I was when I was a tennis, cro- tennis coach. And so I am eating a fair amount of vegan protein. So I might start off with a, a veggie pocket in the morning and veggie chicken sandwich in, in the, for lunch and then, you know, a lentil soup kind of stuff for dinner and you know quite you know vegan chili i think is a, is what i've got going for tonight and um it's basically plant-based nutrition absolutely a- any closing thought yeah i know we've talked about a lot of if i had to get one message across to to folks of you know about not letting their culture hold their heart hostage it really would be to get the understanding particularly if you are in control of your family's diet if I, had, if I could get all the people in the room to recognize that they are in control of the cardiac events for their entire family when they make shopping and cooking decisions, if we could just get that into the, the mind of American people, we could turn this thing around completely. And, you know, I, I didn't get a lot of pushback when I said it publicly at the beginning of my ACC presidency. Wouldn't it be great if we could el- eliminate our specialty our specialty in a couple of generations. Well, actually, I've been thinking about that the whole time you've been talking and you just said it. Well, Dr. Wims, thank you so much for taking an hour of your busy day. I appreciate it very much. And this will be up in iTunes and on my website and I'll send you some links. And so again, thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. And until next time, stay and be well. 